0: President
1: and CEO of the Murphy Law Firm. Thank you so much for joining us for today's teleconference session for employers dealing with H-1B litigation issues uh, and, in general, about immigration litigation trends against the federal government, including H-1B-related issues. I am honored to have with me on today's panel for discussion two of my esteemed and brilliant colleagues and attorneys at the Murphy Law Firm. Adam Rosen, who's one of our assistant managing attorneys, and in fact is the attorney uh, heading up the entire litigation team, and we have Kevin Andrews, also who has been an attorney coordinator and very experienced and knowledgeable attorney who's been with the firm uh, for over a decade at this point, point. and I was just thinking right before this conference that we have probably well over half a century, 50-plus years of experience amongst the three of us and so today we're going to share some of our successes about cases about multi law firm successes and have each each of my two esteemed colleagues talk about those topics as well many many companies especially technology companies IT companies even today tend to hesitate to file a federal lawsuit against the federal government because people are nervous afraid they don't know what it'll cost how what the repercussions could be on them but i know that for example as one of the legal advisors for IT serve alliance i have Repeatedly over the past four, four, several years, four, five, six years, been pointing out the importance of challenging the federal government, and a lot of companies now are much more willing and open to consider a lawsuit if they feel that, you know, that there's injustice or that the denial is clearly arbitrary and capricious, should not have been done, et cetera. The other thing that we've also seen is, you know, previously people would often file motions to reopen, reconsider MTRs or file the AAO appeal because the administrative appeals office, because they felt, well, at least it'll give me some time, even though it doesn't keep the employee in a valid legal status or maintaining status, or even allow the person to continue working after the denial. But people felt that, you know, might as well give it a shot. But now we know that the AAO pretty much often, very often in I think more than 96 or 98% of the cases, rubber stamps the decisions of the U.S. CIS. Uh, and with the MTR, it goes back to the same U.S. CIS officer that maybe gave the original denial decision. So it's becoming a waste of time, money, cost, expenses, everything uh, to invest in both of those options. Clearly, as we said, the option to filing the MTR or going to the AAO seems to be uh, one option. Previously, used to be to refile the H-1 petition. Even that's becoming now... Uh, uh, useless to a large extent because the USCIS is tending to issue the same RFP over and over and over again. Um, and so employers are now saying, you know what, what do I have to lose? I'm willing to consider this lawsuit. You know, what will it cost me? What are the pros and cons? How much time will it take? When will I get an answer and what will happen? And so I'm going to invite, uh, Adam Rosen, who is our as I said, the head of our litigation team here, to explain why is litigation becoming more popular, and why would you recommend it, Adam, to our clients?
0: So probably one of the main reasons why litigation is becoming more popular. Um, I think even more a reason why uh, more companies uh, and individuals are turning to it even more than why we're recommending it is because the denial rates for h one b petitions have increased significantly. They are rising from 6% in fiscal year 2015 to somewhere between 20 and 30% now, which is significantly high, and I think it puts in perspective um, how to appreciate things when you know when they are, because apparently they can get much worse. And so, looking at these numbers between fiscal year 2015 and 2018, the denial rate for new H1B petitions alone quadrupled from 6% to 24%. It puts this in perspective. If you look back at fiscal year 2010 and 2015, the denial rate for those initial H1B petitions never exceeded 8%. But today, the denial rate is three to four times higher. And so, when so many more H1B petitions are going to be denied, you know, previously an employer might have either put a little money into a denial and done a motion or maybe just given up on it. But because Because of how many more petitions are getting denied, litigation is something that companies are looking to more often. Now, there's also the weariness factor. Um, After getting RFE after RFE and trying to guess whether the evidence that actually does exist will be enough to satisfy and convince the immigration service to approve a case, so when a denial comes and instead of refiling the petition and possibly even having to require the beneficiary to leave the United States employers are doubling down on their H1B petition and they're turning to the courts in order to help them because just going back to USCIS puts them in the same position that they were previously they may not get a different decision they may get the same kind of RFE that they got last time and so in order to try and get past that they are just going to the courts
1: yeah that makes perfect sense in fact I know that, uh, you know, as we said, even with the possibility of the USCIS fighting the lawsuit and the court possibly ruling against the employer, it still is far more, much, much higher chance of obtaining an approval or getting successful results with the lawsuit as we have been seeing compared to doing the MTR, the AO, or trying to go after and file a new petition or respond to the the RFP anyway, you would respond, but after that, it becomes the issue. So I, some of the issues that I know we all know that the USCI is going after, of course, is the specialty occupation issue. So I'm going to invite Kevin Andrews to talk about, you know, the four criteria and why is that even becoming an issue? Because we all thought we knew what specialty occupation was for at least 30 years since the Immigration Act of 1990 or Imac 1990. And, you know, now you come to this time and you're like, that's like 40 years ago, right, 40 years ago, and now you're like, why are we dealing with this issue today?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Sheila. So, you know, it is uh, it is interesting because, as you said, the law hasn't changed, but, boy, the policy sure has, and as Adam mm-hmm. was talking about, the, um, the outcomes have changed. And, you know, when you look a little bit deeper into those numbers Adam was talking about, you know, when you go to look at the actual denial decisions, you'd think you'd see some... You know, major mistakes. But what we often see are um, very generic, boilerplate type of denial decisions. So it looks like it's more reflective of uh, increasing in the percentage of the, decision, the denial rate, as opposed to any change in the quality of the review. So specialty occupation is like the most basic uh, issue, the most basic element of an H-1B petition. It's a job that requires at least a bachelor's degree. Um, for entry into the position in a a field of study, a particular field of study. And a lot of the cases that we've seen over the uh, last several years challenging the H-1B denials have been centered around this uh, issue of specialty occupation. And As many of you all know, the criteria for showing specialty occupation is four regulatory criteria. You need to meet one of four, uh, just one of the four in order to qualify. Uh, we've seen some decisions where USCIS is saying but you failed to meet, um, you know, one of the four criteria. So that's a clear departure from what the law actually says requiring all the criteria as opposed to at least one of them. Um, and, and just to review what these criteria are, just to make sure we're all on the same page, it's um, the first one is that the job re- normally requires a bachelor's in a field of study, a specific field of study as a normal entry requirement for the position. Uh, the second is that the bachelor's degree is common to the industry or the job duties are so complex or unique that, you know, the attainment of a bachelor's degree is normal for the duties to be performed. The third one is that the employer normally requires the bachelor's for the position. And the fourth is that the nature of the duties are so specialized and complex that, you know, the, the, uh, that they would normally need to be performed by someone with a bachelor's degree. Really all of these four criteria are synonymous with each other. They all sound very similar. It's just, Uh, looking at the same issue from different perspectives. And as a practical matter, I think we tend to document all of the criteria in each of the RFEs, but we're seeing several cases where USCIS picks on maybe certain SOC codes or when you list certain fields of study uh, as as what they perceive as the weakness to, you know, enter and deny the case. Uh, So there have been lots of cases uh, involving those, and I guess we can go over a few of those now.
1: Sure, yeah, that will be great. And you know what? Actually, under their own regulations, you're only required to meet one of the four criteria, not all of the four, though the RSEs have been harping on, you haven't met, you've met only two out of the three, or three out of four, or whatever, one out of four. Well, their own regulations require this, 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 or this, not and this. And so some of these court cases, actually, the federal judges pretty much said, "Uh uh-uh, you can't ask for it, you can't change the rules of the game in the middle of the game, USCIS. So let's start, um, Adam, if we can start with you to discuss a little bit the Inspection Expert Corporation case.
0: Sure. So this is a – well, they're all recent cases. Um, So this case was from the federal court in North Carolina. Uh, It ruled against USCIS saying that the government – was improperly denying an H-1B petition after they claimed that the offered position didn't qualify as a specialty occupation. So in the H-1B petition, the employer had said that the job requires a bachelor's degree or higher in mechanical engineering, computer science, or a related technical or engineering field. USCIS said this was too broad. And so under the law, to be a specialty occupation, the job has to require a degree that will prepare you with knowledge so that there needs to be some kind of connection or relationship between the degree and the job, and USCIS was just saying that there wasn't any connection, wasn't any relationship. The court, however, held that USCIS's interpretation was not um, reasonable and um, ruled for the company, Inspection Expert Corporation. Now, one of the more novel aspects of the case is that it was issued after the Supreme Court issued their decision called Kaiser v. Wilkie. Now, that case is only interesting because it talked about when does a federal court have to accept the government's interpretation of its own regulations, and when does the court have to stop and say, nope this doesn't make sense, your interpretation doesn't doesn't work. And so this case appears to be one of the first immigration-related cases where the federal judge has specifically analyzed whether the USCIS interpretation of its own regulations is entitled to that deference or agreement by the court under this decision. Um, they, spe- they specifically cited it and discussed that Supreme Court case at length when they issued their decision. And so the court there agreed that USCIS's interpretation is not... Um, entitled to any kind of deference or agreement, and they ruled for the company and uh, reverse the denial.
1: Wonderful! Yeah, this it. is so. This is so exciting to 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 see that courts are. And again, for those who are not familiar, we've often talked about the balance of powers. So the administration is one part one part of the executive department, and then you have the judiciary, the courts that can oversee any abuse of power or abuse of discretion. And, of course, then you have the, le- the Congress or the legislature that can, again, offset And the, three, the balance of the three uh, different arms of the government are in, at play here with the federal courts basically slapping the wrist of the USCIS, telling them what they're doing is a violation of their own law, their own statutes, their own regulations, and the Administrative Procedures Act or the APA. So the next case we want to briefly discuss and I'm going to invite Kevin to talk about is the Tailor-Made Software case.
2: Thanks, Joe. So the Tailor-Made Software Case is um, that's another H1B case. This one was interesting because it involved the SOC code for computer systems analysts. And uh, you know, for those of us who have been doing this for a long time, computer systems analysts in the IT um, industry has been a commonly used SOC code. But uh, relatively recently, like in 18 or uh, definitely by 19, there was a very, very high denial rate for all um, H-1B petitions filed with that SOC code. It's 151121, regardless of the wage level. And what USCIS would often say is that, well, the Department of Labor Occupational Outlook Handbook says that um, uh, the job is, or, or that the bachelor's degree is common but not always required. And sometimes they would quote uh, some of the percentage data from the ONET that says 46% of respondents have a bachelor's degree. So that doesn't seem very "quote unquote" normal to us. Uh, what was USCIS's position? I mean, it changed our way that we strategize in filing and that we were trying to avoid use of computer systems analysts. So, but but this case is interesting. Tailor-made software, I think, is having us kind of reevaluate that because uh, the federal court there agreed that you know. Again, kind of what Adam was talking about, where the uh, USCIS's um, reasoning for saying that this is not a specialty occupation, specifically that the Occupational Outlook Handbook infers that something less than a bachelor's degree would possibly be required, um, that that doesn't make any sense. You know, if if the the plain language of the handbook says common that the degree in computer or information science is common, although not always required. That, that's going to be interpreted as normal. I mean, this is kind of more like a, uh, about common sense, about common language, this case. But uh, it was really, um, you know, a breath of relief for us, I think, because I think it's something that we're going to be, you know, using as ammunition in the filing of cases if computer systems analysts really is the only code that can be used. Um, so finally, I think it's worth noting that, you know, the court said the regulatory criterion is not whether the degree is always required or whether some employers do not require it. That's That's the... Uh, standard USCIS wanted to take for the word common. And so the federal court, you know, reversed a a major obstacle, I think, with USCIS in their interpretation, especially when it comes to this SOC code. So I think we're going to see, again, this is like Adam said, all these cases are from, I mean, I think the earliest ones are in March, you know, March 2020. So we're talking,
1: discussing very recent cases, basically. Very, very, yeah enlightened employers and the next case i want to touch upon briefly the info labs versus uscis again this case involved the department of labor's ooh the occupational outlook handbook um, and the court again ruling in favor of the h1b petitioning employer uh, and against the uscis pointed out the same issue that kevin just mentioned namely that from the court's perspective the OOH or the handbook statement that a bachelor's degree in computer science or information science is common, although not always a requirement, supports rather than disprove the proposition that a specialized degree or its equivalent is normally the minimum requirement. The fact that such a degree is not always required or that some firms hire analysts with the general business or liberal arts degree does not suggest that specialty degree is not normally required. So you can see where the courts are going, the trend that they're looking at, and how they're approaching this. So we'll touch upon one last case before we go to the jump to the right to control. So, Adam, can I invite you to talk briefly about the India House case? Indian House sure.
0: Case. So the India House case comes out of a uh, district court federal district court in Rhode Island, and it involved a position for a general operations manager. The um, case actually had been denied by the Administrative Appeals Office. They refused to reverse um, reverse the denial and simply upheld it. And so the court ruled that the employer's requirement, um, the, the, the court ruled that USCIS's denial um, of the HMB petition for a general operations manager who is running a series of restaurants with a bachelor 's degree in hospitality management, that decision that denial was arbitrary and capricious. The court ruled uh, ruled this way because of several factors um, one, um, as Kevin was talking about the occupational outlook handbook, the court looked at that information and thought that the information, as the employer had argued, made sense. The employer's description of the job duties, the employer had given a lot of details about what uh, the individual would be doing, and the fact that USCIS had been approving H-1B petitions for the same employer and the same worker and essentially the same job, and so... We've actually, in our experience, we've actually successfully overturned um, a denial like that. Where a company had been doing H-1Bs for somebody for several years, gotten approvals, and then suddenly USCIS went ahead and denied uh, an extension. And so um, we presented our case to the court, explaining why this was unreasonable of USCIS. And the government, government, um, before having to fight it out with the court, agreed to reverse the denial and approve the H-1B petition. And I think in this case, one of the Um, important lessons here is that um, even though USCIS is not giving any deference to previous decisions, unless they can really explain themselves and why they're coming to a different decision other than the fact that they have the power to just make a different decision, um, that's something that might be worthwhile, challenging in federal court.
1: Excellent. Thank you, Adam, and a very good point. And the other point that this case, the Indian House case actually points out, the Rhode Island federal court case, is that the uh, if, if an employer, if you as an employer, choose to file the appeal with the Administrative Appeals Office or the AO appeal, then actually, then you're required to wait for that action to get resolved. But you don't have to wait to file the AO appeal, as we pointed out at the very beginning, in order to file the case in federal court, because the agency's final decision, the approval of the denial, the denial of the H-1 petition, is the agency's final action from which you can take the case straight to federal court, which is why you don't want to waste one or two or three years waiting for the AAO to rubber stamp the prior denial of the USCIS. Uh, Next, let's jump to uh, the right to control. I will invite um, Kevin to talk briefly, I guess, about it, and then uh, we'll discuss the IT Serval Alliance case.
2: Uh, Right to control is one of the other major obstacles of Uh, When we're seeing the increased denial rate with USCIS, and right-to-control is not a new issue, but the intensity of of substantiating it has definitely increased over the last several years, especially since the uh, February 2018 policy memo on right-to-control, but really also with the 2010 first right-to-control menu that created the whole laundry list. so it's uh, it's been a it's been a chore and and it's been a burden and that burden has only increased over the years especially for those who are working at uh, third-party placement uh, the the list of documentation that USCIS is demanding has become more daunting uh, before maybe pre-2018 USCIS would expect contract statement of work um, or a letter from the client and the vendor. But since then, it seems more that USCIS is demanding contract statement of work and a letter from each layer. And if you're unable to get one of those three elements, the chances of denial are, are, are pretty high. So uh, we're seeing a lot of cases that have challenged this aggressive increase in the scrutiny of right to control, not just during the Trump administration, but in the Obama administration before it.
1: Yeah. And so I thought it would be helpful to talk about, of course, one of the most seminal cases, issued in March of 2020, the IP Serve Alliance versus USDIS. Mainly, a big part of the reason was that there were over 60 H-1B petitions that were included with over 30 employers that joined together uh, to file the lawsuit uh, in the Washington, D.C. federal court. Um, And the judge held, the federal judge held that the Trump administration could not use the prior memos from 2018 Uh, on contracts or the uh, 2010 control memos on H-1B petitions, uh, because all of these memos, of course, were done uh, without notice and comment, without following the Administrative Procedures Act or the APA, Uh, and the court, in fact, said that the current USCIS interpretation of the employer-employee relationship requirement is inconsistent with its regulation was announced and applied without rulemaking and cannot be enforced. So they were very clear about that. Um, also, the the, the 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 only downside was a fantastic decision. The the judge basically gave everything in favor of the employers or petitioners against the U.S. government. The only little bit gray area was the shortened duration that Adam I think is going to speak about next. But the 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 only legal limitation, of course, that we've talked about is that it, it applies only to those specific cases that were part of the lawsuit because it did not become a class action lawsuit. So the USCIS has continued to technically apply these memos or whatever they feel like doing because uh, they apparently there have been discussions um, from USCIS. Multi-law firm understands from conversations that USCIS is internally still considering what to do and how to respond or react to whether to change some of their policies, but unfortunately they haven't done anything about it. And again, part of the the requirements is that under the current administration, since it was part of Trump's overall mission as both a candidate and as a president to go after immigration-related issues to protect jobs under the Buy American, Hire American Executive Order back from early 2017, that those RFEs and denials are continuing to be issued by USCIS even after the March 2020 decision in ID of Alliance versus USCIS, and so the uh, question is, do we need to do something more? Do we want to push something more? Or do we, does each employer have to individually, bit by bit, bit, keep nibbling away and biting away and taking back power and control from the USCIS for their unlawful, illegal, arbitrary and capricious actions?
0: Um, what's interesting, yeah. Sheila is that I think the judges in at least the district court in washington d c are um my my personal impression is that they're starting to get a little ticked off with um with u s c i s There was a decision that got issued relatively recently, i think it was mid or early April where the judge in his opinion ruled for the employer but in in that opinion the the judge discussed basically all of the recent uh, court decisions that have been issued on H-1B issues um, and explaining away way the, the one or two were USCIS-1, but showing how um, the other, basically addressing why the other ones were correct. So, you know, it's possible also, even from the, the court's perspective, that there's some kind of momentum Um, that is happening that may work in uh, favor of employers that are continuing to fight these issues. Um,
2: Okay. Okay,
1: and so do you want to touch briefly upon the whole shortened duration in that context? Yeah,
0: as you said, that was the one issue that the court sort of gave um, a little bit to USCIS. Um, The USCIS requirement that employers provide proof of non-speculative work assignments for the duration of the visa period um, is not supported by the statute or the regulation. And in the judge's um, opinion was arbitrary and capricious as applied to all those visa petitions. Um, And essentially, the judge is saying that um, this requirement that that USCIS is applying in these petitions where they're asking for contracts or statements of work that that match up exactly with the period requested on the I-129 is not, um, is not there in, in the regulations and therefore you can't impose it in the memos. Um, they, the judge did say, however, that USAID has the authority to approve an H-1B for less than the requested three-year three period, but they have to give a reason behind behind that decision, whether they're granting it in part or they're, denying the whole, uh, or they're denying the whole request. Either way, they have to give an explanation other than simply saying, well, the memo says you have to give me contracts and you didn't give me contracts. So um,
1: exactly,
0: and I think think, uh, right. You're uh, you're going to say, Sheila?
1: Yeah, I was going to say well, and exactly because I know that with your team at the Mooty Law Firm, you've been very successful on behalf of many of the companies, H-1B employers, petitioners, in challenging these denials involving all of these issues, including the right of control issue, and you know, and also when we are filing our petitions, we are being very strong mentioning this in other cases and saying that what they're doing is a violation of the APA and that they are not allowed to do it, and hence they have to approve this petition. Um, and we find that when they know that you are aware of what's going on and you're challenging them and you're fighting back very strongly with your with a very strong base of knowledge, the government is tending to backpedal and approve those petitions without even having to go to court. And when we do go to court, of course, the, the, they know that what they're doing is illegal and very often, as soon as we file the case, and overwhelming majority of the cases, we're getting these approvals. Uh, next, let's talk about the writs of mandamus. Um, and so, I uh, guess you're you're going to discuss it, uh, Kevin.
2: Yeah. So, um, just just for context here, up until now, the cases that we've been talking about were under a legal theory of violation of the Administrative Procedures Act. So, basically, you get a denial. And it's wrong. You know, the USCIS did not follow the rules in issuing the denial. Uh, Another common litigation strategy is to file a writ of mandamus, uh, what we call WOM here uh, for WOM. And a writ of mandamus is, whereas APA is for improper denial, writ of mandamus is generally for improper delay. So um, mandamus is just a fancy Latin word for compelling uh, action. Uh, the court can compel USCIS to take action if they have a, uh, a non-discretionary duty to take action on a case. Um, so, you know, basically, the, the lawsuit is filed against the government, asking the court to order the government to come up with a decision, N- not to f- um, not to issue a definite approval, but to do the, your job and render a decision. So, analyze the facts and and give a decision. So for this reason, the the writs the of mandamus that we file can be used in, you know, virtually any situation where you're requesting an immigration benefit. You, you do have to show why it's an extraordinary, uh, uh, because you have to be able to show why this extraordinary remedy should be granted. Um, uh, that's the standard for, for such an order. Uh, so we have to be careful. The cases that we file, we want to make sure that we're, um, you know, uh, H-1B is, pending for especially these days without premium processing for 30 days. I don't think it's a, um, although it might be allowable to do, you might want to think strategically about filing a case so soon for delay in in that context. Uh, But, you know, other times it might uh, warrant the situation. I think um, Adam had a situation, correct me if I'm wrong, Adam, with uh, wasn't there an H4 EAD and there was. um, And
1: I can talk about some of these cases. So as, as just as Kevin was saying, this, A writ of mandamus or the writ can be filed almost on anything. It doesn't have to be only for H-1B delays. It can be the H-1B petition. It can be an immigrant visa petition. It can be a 485 where the priority date is current. It can be an EB-5 investor petition, H-4, H-4 EAD delays. It can even be visa. Visa delays at the consulate abroad. If your employee goes abroad, it's stuck, or the employee family members and the employee go abroad, or they're separate, the H-4. In fact, one of the H-4 visa cases I remember talking to the client And he was stuck for almost a year, 10, 11 months outside the country. And as soon as Moosey Law Firm filed the writ of mandamus against the U.S. Department of State, in that example, uh, the U.S. consulate, we were able to, they they didn't even reply that the thing. The visa was promptly issued for that person. Um, And so, and the person came into the country, I think, within a couple of weeks um, after we had, uh, within a few weeks, two or three weeks after we had filed the lawsuit because the government basically the consulate immediately issued the visa for that the H-1B visa stamped in the passport for the person to be able to re-enter the United States. Um, so we do this all the time, and uh, again, it's you don't you're basically saying I don't know what the answer will be, but I'm not willing to wait any longer, and I need a decision ASAP. And that's what the writ is, as Kevin just explained. Um, I don't know if Adam you wanted to add any other cases to this discussion.
0: No, no, Um, I think the only thing is, I mean, I think as you said and Kevin said, um, potentially anything is possible. You just have to explore that um, the situation is such that really waiting is unreasonable from a more objective perspective. And, um, you know, as long as there are no facts that are really negative, um, then, you know, you can go ahead. There may be facts either whether it's for an adjustment application where the priority data is not current, or, um, you know, something really hasn't been pending for very long, or maybe the the delay is caused by the individual applying for the benefit. Um, but otherwise, yeah, it could potentially be um, for anything where the government has a duty to act.
1: Okay. Okay. And so I know, thank you very much. So now let's change topics a little bit. I know there's been a lot of talk, a big part of the whole Buy American, Hire American, was this new requirement and a new interpretation of definition of public charge, which is so much stricter and so much more difficult than it's ever been, both in the non-immigrant and immigrant context, but particularly in the immigrant context, we have seen this happen. But even in the non-immigrant, we know that consulates are denying tourist visas for parents, for spouses, for F2 visas, for students, H4 visas for the uh, the principal, for the dependents of the H1B, if they feel that the person... Has taken a benefit, could take a benefit, could be subject to public charge provisions, et cetera. And uh, particularly in the immigrant context, we know that there is a lawsuit that's pending. Um, Adam, would you like to briefly talk about the lawsuit?
0: Yeah, um, it's pending in the federal court in the state of Oregon, and it, it involves the public charge requirement and the president's proclamation. And things have developed quite a bit from there, but since the case is still pending, there was an effort that was being made um, just recently to try and stop the um, president's newest proclamation over um, the 60-day suspension of immigrant visa entry to the United States. Um, and based on a subcategory in this Oregon uh, lawsuit of people who are underage, who are minors, that would have um, be impacted by being unable to enter the United States. And um, the, unfortunately, um, the court, because of it was filed as what's called a temporary restraining order, the time frame on that kind of thing moves extremely fast. And the court, I think, ruled um, actually yesterday or um, sometime in the past couple of days that... Um, The motion is dismissed because they said that the particular issues weren't really um, at the heart of the lawsuit. And so I think that was the first and quickest way that um, the um, organizations that are supporting the lawsuit could look at to try and attack the proclamation. But I think this is just one of several attempts that we'll see in the coming weeks to try and strike that proclamation down.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so let's jump next to the presidential proclamation issued on April 22nd of 2020, but became effective 11.59 p.m. on Thursday, uh, April 23rd of 2020. And uh, I'm going to invite Kevin to briefly talk about it, uh, because I know people are nervous about what this means and how will it affect my, my business, my company, my employees, green card holders. Will it affect H-1Bs, L-1s down the road, et cetera?
2: Definitely. Yeah, so... Um, I got to be honest with you guys. It's the longest conversation I've had in recent history where I haven't uh, the word COVID 19 has not been invoked. So, but I'm gonna have to break that pattern now and talk about that here. Uh, so the 60 day suspension was uh, based on the president's tweet was something that was invoked due to the uh, the current pandemic, and uh, the president's tweet is to suspend entry of certain immigrants coming in. And as Adam mentioned, there's a ongoing lawsuit a challenging you know, certain uh, underage children who might age out as a result of this um, uh, suspension. So, um, and some, something else that's interesting about the, um, interesting in a bad way about the presidential order is that the uh, the proclamation is that it directs uh, agencies to review non-immigrant visas in the next 30 days and to give recommendations there. So, um, you know, on the one hand, I, I think we're kind of caught in between whether to, um panic or to ignore, you know, what's going on here because it seems like this proclamation was done after the fact with the president's tweet, but we know that there are uh, people within the administration that would like to um, be the architects of the destruction of a lot of um, work authorization programs, particularly for non-immigrants, and uh, that seems like that might be, you know, in, in some brainstorming session somewhere in the White House or somewhere else, so... I think yeah. the important lesson that people need to take away from all this is that uh, you know follow follow what's going on, but everybody's situation is going to be very individualized, case by case, and really do need to talk to you know an attorney and and get um, some feedback about these strategies. And litigation is probably going to be one of the tools in the toolbox for a lot of people that are going to be um, harmed by this.
1: Absolutely, and in fact, like you correctly pointed out. Uh, You know, one of the issues that we are seeing, of course, is that the president has used COVID-19 and the health crisis by introducing this temporary suspension because green card holders not being able to reenter the United States in certain very limited circumstances has almost absolutely nothing to do with COVID-19 or the ongoing coronavirus or health scare. And the scary part, like we pointed out, was where the proclamation directs other agencies to review non-immigrant visas in the next 30 days. So we don't know what the impact or what they might be coming up or thinking by buying themselves 30 days of time with respect to H1s or L1s or other non-immigrant visa categories and what they may end up doing with any of that. Uh, the last point I know we want to touch upon is just the ALA versus EHS lawsuit, which is again, another lawsuit going on with COVID-19. I can invite uh, Adam to talk about it before we try to wrap up with the conclusion.
0: Sure. So, ALA um, filed a complaint against USCIS in the US District Court in Washington, D.C. on behalf of its members on April 3rd in order to um, seek the immediate suspension of immigration benefit deadlines as well as the requirement that non immigrants um, maintain their status for whether they're filing extensions or or um, change the status of this way, basically saying that things are um, quite difficult um, and some people may not be able to because of the COVID-19 pandemic to maintain their status um, and so basically challenging the government um, in court to try and suspend that requirement. And right now that is still pending with the court, so it remains to be seen whether something will um, happen and develop. Um, and so hopefully since it sounds like Um, things um, may still be going on for some time that hopefully we'll be able to get something positive out of that lawsuit as well.
1: Yeah, but they also asked USCIS, I remember, for the 60-day extension, which USCIS has granted, so that if any RFE, MTR, NOID, uh, or anything is due within within this time period between March 15th and May 15th, that they were going to automatically give 60 extra days extension in those cases, but this is On top of that, a separate lawsuit that was filed on April 3rd of 2020 um, by AILA to try to get additional time, additional um, some kind of leniency from the USCIS because of the overall nature, because they are not open for business. They are not allowing people to come in. They're not taking care of most emergency situations where it's been very difficult for individuals who have to depart the United States to try to get the satisfactory departure records, all of the different things that we're trying to get resolved for people who are stuck in the United States because they can't travel or issues like that uh, where they are asking for discretionary relief. It's been quite cumbersome and onerous for individuals and employers to try to, you know, deal with those situations. Uh, But I know we're always sensitive to trying to keep our teleconferences Because everybody is busy and life has been very stressful in the last, you know, since mid March when all of this became an even bigger issue with COVID 19. Um, But we want to again stress that as employers, is that litigation is absolutely not just an option that you should consider and not be afraid of, but that you could you should happily go towards, especially if the USCIS is going to be unreasonable and not follow their own statutes and laws and regulations, as the courts have repeatedly pointed out. If your case is delayed unreasonably, whether it's the H-1B petition itself that has been pending well over six months, uh, absolutely file a writ of mandamus. Moorthy Law Firm has successfully done that. I remember once an employer hired us for maybe 18 or 22 cases at one time, we were able to give them a very reasonable fee to do so many at the same time, Challenge the government, and I think out of the 18 cases, 16 got approved within two weeks after we filed the lawsuit, the Richard Mendamus lawsuit. And the last two, they issued RFEs. So whatever you need to do, remember that litigation is not the last resort. But now, in today's climate, you might even want to make it as your first go-to option. As soon as you see the denial, instead of filing the MTR or filing the AO appeal or waiting with by contacting the ombudsman's office or contacting your congressman or senator. Uh, similarly, if there's a legal problem that again, USCIS is not willing to resolve, then absolutely come to us and we will be happy to fight for you. Go to your own company lawyer if you want. And so on behalf of myself, Sheila Musi, Adam Rosen, our assistant managing attorney, Kevin Andrews, our senior attorney, and all of us at the Moosey Law Firm, we want to take this opportunity to thank you for joining us this afternoon. Uh, for this teleconference to consider your immigration litigation options when all else fails or even before all else fails, and we want to wish all of you to stay safe and to stay healthy and take care of each other. Thank you very much. Have a good afternoon and we'll continue to support you at Murti Law firm. Bye bye.
0: This is a free service. The content is the protected copyrighted property of the Murti Law firm. Unauthorized recording or dissemination of these materials without prior permission is prohibited by law. Learn about our firm, how to engage our services and more at www.murthy.com.